Well, the NFL is 100 years old uh, this month, actually, and uh, we thought to celebrate that, uh, because so many of you care about it, I don't actually, uh, if you call this church home, you know I'm not a big sports guy. A few years ago, we got together as a family on Thanksgiving Day, after we ate, we were all too full, we decided we'd play some touch football, we even had the, like the flags, so flag football, see, I don't know what I'm talking about, and we even had the flags, because we didn't want it to get too rough, so we're down uh, on the line of scrimmage, that's where you bend over, for folks like me, and we're getting ready to face off to each other, and we've got a play going, and... And I think it was my son hikes the ball to the would-be quarterback, and I take off to run, but instead of running, I step into a little bit of divot in my dad's front yard, and I go down, thought I broke my ankle. That was the end of my professional football career. <laughs> now, a lot of folks in our church love football. I don't know if you remember this or not, but for those of you who've been watching it for a long time, some of you may not have been born, but in 19... 86, professional football brought to the play some new technology. Some new technology where if a coach was watching a play on the field and the referee made a call and the coach didn't think the call was right, they could call for that play and that call from the referee to be brought back for further review. They could bring it back. They could watch the little televisions from the camera. They could see from different angles what was going on. And when this was introduced in 1986, it did not meet with universal praise. It was frustrating for folks. It slowed the game down. It created all kinds of challenges. But by 1999, they had kind of figured it out. Each field had at least 12 cameras on the field of play. They could watch almost anything from every angle. They had limited the number of times a coach could call for a play to be put under further review. They had uh, evaluated how much time was being played and whether or not a timeout would be cost. All kinds of changes were made. And from 1999 until now, I don't know if you know, 37% of plays that are put back under further review are called to a different conclusion than the referee called them when he was watching it in real time. Now, you don't have to like sports at all to understand the power of looking at an event, looking at a situation, looking at a reality from a different angle, getting new information that maybe you didn't see from the perspective you had, and having a chance to undo some things in light of new information that you had. You don't have to be a sports fan to know that if you had the power in your life to go, hold it, I don't like that decision, I don't look what happened, we're just going to hit the pause button. We're going to review it more intently, possibly from other angles. You don't have to be a sports fan to know that there could be great power in that so that the play that was called in the moment, in the heat of the moment, from a limited vantage point, didn't have to define everything that was going on. That would be a powerful thing. And it is. And in fact, not just on football fields, but in life, you have to some real degree power to do just that. To on occasion hit the pause button, look at an event, look at a situation, look at a complex thing through another lens from a different perspective, looking at it from a different beginning point and decide if in fact the thing that you thought was going to happen, the thing you thought that was going to move forward, the thing you thought was going to define the event, you have a chance to decide if that's in fact what you're going to do. In some ways, without exaggerating, Christianity, life with God, because of Jesus, is an opportunity to do what we're talking about the NFL, NFL does all the time. Hit the pause button, look at a different perspective, and decide what's going to happen with more information, with a better angle. 
with a different perspective than maybe you originally brought in the heat of the moment. Now, in our Bible, there are all kinds of characters who, in one way or another, did exactly what we're talking about. Hit the pause button, looked at something different. In fact, one of the major characters of the Bible in the Old Testament, his name is David. You may have heard of him. He's been used, by the way, in locker rooms, in the NFL, and in college football, and high school football, all the way since the game began. Because it was David, the little shepherd boy, who fights a giant named Goliath. It's the classic story of the underdog. And when teams went into the locker room at halftime and they were getting that pep talk from the coach and maybe they were behind or maybe there was a team that was bigger and better and had better stats than them, coach after coach told the story of David and Goliath and reminded them that the little guy sometimes wins. And that's true. But what you may not know about David, outside of being a little inspirational here and there and reminding us that bigger isn't always better, David was, like a lot of us, a man who wore a lot of different hats. Man or woman, you may wear a lot of different hats. David was a, a shepherd. David becomes a king. David was a father. He was a husband. And David, in his life, had an opportunity to learn the power of looking at things from other perspectives. And without yet turning to your message notes, which look like this, while I'm getting mine out, you can get yours out, you can turn it to the back and follow along. I want to take you to the verse that's going to kind of guide us for this entire message series that we're launching today and lasting, including today, five weeks. The book in your Bible called Psalm was uh, written largely by David, a few other people as well. But in one of my favorite ones, in Psalm chapter 139, verse 23, we'll look at it again just a little bit later, David writes these words that I think accurately portray the under further review idea that we've been talking about. He says this in a prayer to God. Listen to the honesty here. One of the reasons I love the Bible is because it's incredibly honest about life. It's not a book of fairy tales. It's not just platitudes. It's not a Pollyanna approach. It's very honest people. And heroes in the Bible like David get down and dirty and gritty with real life, sometimes with prayers like this one. Here's what he says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David had come to a point in his life, we'll tell some of those stories over the next few weeks, where he wanted God to look inside and give David a perspective of his own life that from David's vantage point as he lived it, he couldn't always see. And so he prays a very honest prayer. God, would you search my heart and kind of see what's going on in there? And would you tell me if there's any offensive way in me? That's an honest and bold prayer. God, would you see what's making me anxious about life? Because from my vantage point, I can't see it clearly. So would you help me? Would you let me hit the pause button? And would you bring this play, this point in my life, under further review? And there's a reason that David did this. And even though your situation may be very different than David, certainly different than mine. There's different as we all hear. I'm going to use this little mic stand to represent it. All of us have, I believe, in our life, what I like to call a big idea about who we are. Let me represent it here with this little piece of paper and a capital letter or two. It's this very important word. See if you have ever seen this word before or not. It's the word me. 
for those of you that can't see it. I wrote it in capital letters because all of us have an idea of who we want to be. We all do. I wrote it in capital letters because when we think about who we want to be, typically they are the best parts of who we want to be. It's the most positive possible expression of what we aspire to. It's our aspirational self. When we gathered as a family after that Thanksgiving meal and decided we were going to play football, I had limited but real aspirational self that I was going to get down on that grass with the relatives. I've never done it before in any meaningful way, in any successful way at all, but I was going to get down, and I, this time at 48 years old, was going to be very, very good at a sport I've never been very... It was my aspirational self. I didn't say it was my real self. We're going to actually represent the real self with a different word, all right, if you just give me a second. We're going to use a similar kind of nomenclature, but we're going to write it very differently. It looks a whole lot uh, like the other word, but this word is the word me, not like the word over here, which is me. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a problem, obviously. By this word over here written in large letter, I'm talking about the aspirational self, when we think about ourselves in the best terms, when we're having a good day, when we dream, this is the me that we often think about, and it's a good me. You should have this me. The problem for me, though, is, is that often I live over here with this me. Do you know this me? Like, first of all, do you know this me? Do you have this? I hope you do. But I have often this me over here, which is, looks similar. It's just a lot smaller. This is the aspirational me. This is the me that wants to be a great dad, a great husband, a great pastor. I, heck, I'd like to be a great football player. I'm just not going to really practice. Um, I, I wanted to be a great piano player. I've never taken a lesson, right? That's aspirational me. But I live with, sometimes, an over-realized sense of me, which is kind of reality sometimes. Sometimes reality minus two, if you will. And the, the challenge is, is this is true for all of us. It's what David was dealing with when he prayed the prayer, God, would you search me? Because something's going on. Like, I'm a dad, I'm a king, I'm a shepherd, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a husband, I got people who depend on me. I got titles, I've got responsibilities, I've got hopes, there's me, but God, you need to search me because evidently something's going on in here on occasion, so search my heart, see if there's anything offensive in me, find out what's creating all this anxiety in me, and I want to tell you, sometimes in my own life there has been anxiety because I have to acknowledge that there is a gap between me and me. You ever have that gap? Like, I remember when I stood in front of an audience and the most beautiful woman in the world, and we said these very important words to each other, I do, and we had an aspirational hope of what our marriage was going to look like. I, I had an aspirational hope of what my role was going to be and what role I'd play in her life, and we're approaching 30 years married now this December, and my aspirational self compared to my real self on certain days I'm, I'm over here. But for ta far too many days, I'm over here. And there's a gap that exists. It exists in all of our lives. And in that gap, we try to do all kinds of things to close the gap. And many of them are wonderful. We're going to reinforce some of that over the next few weeks. And some of those things are not so wonderful. 
So one of the things I'm going to invite all of you to do, beginning today, is to do exactly what David did with that prayer, what football players have happened to them all the time, is to kind of hit the pause button and ask God to help you get a different perspective, a right perspective, a better perspective, a better angle from which to view the stuff that is going on in your life. And in that, perhaps, discover what's making you anxious, see if there's anything in there that needs to be cleaned out, and see if what God might want to do in your life not, might, would be something you would choose for yourself if you had his wisdom. Because if not, let me tell you what happens if you don't try to manage, to some real sense, the gap between you and you. Here's what happens. It shows up in your relationships. It shows up in your relationships. Now, in football terms, when problems show up in relationships, they call those fouls. You watched one on the screen for a few moments before I started talking. There are all kinds of fouls in football. I mean, they run the gamut. There are fouls for hitting out of bounds or after the play. I have to read these, by the way, because I don't have them memorized. For lunging towards the head of, of, an, of another person or any part of headbutting, that, that's not allowed. There's grabbing the face mask. Then there's kicking, taunting, and spearing. There's targeting, piling on, piling on offsides, tripping, and unsportsmanlike conduct. And when I read this list as a pastor, I don't know if we're talking about the NFL or many marriages that I've seen and sometimes been a part of. This happens in marriages and friendships. It happens in your work environment. It happens in churches. Sometimes, depending on how we navigate this and the perspective we had, if we don't manage this well, it'll often show up in our relationships. So we're calling this whole series, you ready for this? Unnecessary roughness. And today I want to talk about the gap. And I want to ask you a simple question. What do you want to be known for? Because the truth is, in your message notes, blank one, we all want to be known. That's good. I want to be known. And the people closest to me, I want to know them well. But sometimes when I really think about who I am and who they are, the gap stand, stares me in the face. The big gap. Sometimes a small gap, but it always seems to be there. So there's a gap between who we are and who we aspire to be sometimes. We all want to be known for something that we're good at. But I'm not sure we all really want to be fully known. I'm not sure we all want to be fully known. And this is what David was wrestling with when he said to God, God, I need you to search me. I need you to help me figure out what's going on inside of me. Because sometimes that's hard for me to do. I'm stuck with me. I have the perspective of me. I always see me. I view me through the lens of me. And I need you, God, to view me through your lens and give me a different perspective. Because we all want to be known for something that we're good at. Something that other people praise. Something we're really objectively better than. Those aren't bad things. But in this series, I want to challenge you not to just be known for something, but to truly be known. To truly be known. But the moment you do that, you do run up against the gap. So what do you do with the gap? Before I suggest what we might be able to do, let me ask you, what do you actually do with the gap? All kinds of things people do with the gap. You've met people who do every one of these gap management 
realities, one of these gap management behaviors. You, you, you've met people who do all of these. Here's the first one, just if you want to take a note on the side of your paper there. Some of us simply ignore the gap. Do you have anybody in your life who you would say the truth is there's a big gap between what they project or what we need them to project and where they really are? And they don't seem to have a clue about it. They don't seem to have a clue. People are very good. I've been very good at ignoring the gap to the detriment. And when I've done that, it tends to show up in negative, painful ways in my own life. And that would be something we could talk about. But for this series, I want to talk with you about, honestly, how it shows up in the relationships of your life. When you ignore the gap, you can create unnecessary roughness in your relationships. You can some people ignore the gap. Other people, they compare themselves. You've met people like this. I've played this role. Where I think about some gap in me and I'm a little frustrated, a little perturbed. I feel maybe a little motivated to try to engage the gap and move forward better towards my healthier whole self. And then I think for a moment, wait a second. I'm better than, and then I fill in the blank. So for me, it's like I'm better than Ted Bundy. I'm better than Charlie Manson. All right, you start way low, you know. Start way low, way on the list. These, if, you don't, if you're young, these are like bad serial killers and character types. And so, it's just, so you start, I'm better than, and you know, Homer Simpson, fictional character, but I'm better than him. I'm better. And we do this comparison. It's the most natural thing in the world. In fact, part of our development as human beings, especially in middle school, we begin to learn who we are in part by comparing ourselves to other people, there's a certain usefulness in that, but it has limits as well. Sometimes we ignore, sometimes we compare, sometimes we do an averaging thing. Yeah, you ever, you ever done this? We, it's like we have scales. And so like, Ben, you're right. I'm not always my aspirational self. Okay, good. And so the scales go down a little bit, right? But I do a lot of good stuff. Like I'm not always bad. So I did a few good things, and now we begin to balance the scales back a little bit. And so we're doing this good and bad behavior thing, sometimes to get a sense of who we are and our value and maybe how we think other people see us. And if we're not careful, that averaging thing that gets in us can be an incredible weight that gets on our shoulders. And the Bible, believe it or not, suggests for us a much better way to deal with the gap between our aspirational self and the reality of who we are. So I just call it the get real approach. The get real approach. Is it possible for you and I to get totally honest with who we are and where we are and what we want and what's really going on inside of here and inside of here? Is that possible? And it is. In fact, I don't know if anybody told you this about the Lord yet or not, but there's something the Lord really values, and it's truth. And when you get truthful about you, here's what Jesus said about that, that you'll know the truth and it will set you free. It's an interesting phrase he used, because in one sense, when Jesus said, you'll know the truth and it'll set you free, he's actually talking about himself. Like, you'll know me, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that'll set you free. And if that's all he meant, that's awesome. But that phrase, you'll know the truth and it'll set you free, is a powerful phrase on a lot of levels. Sometimes you'll know the truth about a situation, and when you know the truth about a situation, you're free to move forward into that situation with the information at hand, 
and move forward confidently and boldly into that situation. Sometimes you'll know the truth about yourself. And when you do that, when you know who you really are and what's really going on, it gives you an edge, a healthy edge, to deal with the stuff that life throws at you. In our church, when we started years ago, we so wanted to value this truth sets you free principle that we came up with a word that we thought embodied it for us. It doesn't always communicate to everybody else, but it was the word, very simply, real. We wanted people to be able to come to a church and be real. So many of us had grown up in church, and in an attempt to manage the gap, sometimes the church puts on you, they pretended, they projected, they image managed, they managed their image. Sometimes it wasn't real at all. And you didn't know it sometimes for a long time. And then when it began to come out, sometimes the pain was brutal. Because the reality is, is we all have a gap to manage. But if there were a place where you could be real, where it was okay to not always be the capital M-E of you, wouldn't that be a refreshing place? What if there was a place where you could pray a prayer and it was valued if you said to other people, I just want God to show me who I am and work in me and tell me what's going on in here. Because sometimes I surprise myself with how selfish I can be. That's just the truth, by the way. 30 years of marriage, can I tell you a few things I've learned? Selfishness runs deep in the human heart. And I've been trying to get Jill to change for 30. Sorry, it's cheap shot, cheap shot. No, I can't imagine how selfish I have been in 30 years. I, I thought I was ready. I aspired to. What, what if there was a place where I didn't have to hide that? What, what if, and there is. There's a place called God's family, the church. There's a relationship with God where all the gap of who you are can be dealt with with honesty and integrity and forthrightness. And there's no pretending necessary because in the gap between who we are and who we aspire to be there's a God who can show up and make a big difference this is what David knew when he faced his biggest failures he failed big like dropped the ball see how I'm carrying that NFL metaphor he dropped the ball he was offside that's about as far as I can go all right I'll have to start reading my notes again if I go much further he was completely outside the bounds, and at the same time, he knew that the place to deal with the gap was honestly before God, bringing his honest self and his humble self before God. I want to suggest to you three things you might be able to do to deal with the gap. I hope you find them helpful. It's on your message notes. Here we go. We all want to be known, but what we really need, I believe, is to know ourselves. So I've been trying to soft pedal it a little bit, even though we're going at it directly, about the fact that we all have a small M-E reality in us. It's true. I'm not talking about the gaps your parents tried to put on you or some other religious person tried to put on you or some perf uh, job performance or some teacher put on you. Uh, that's a different discussion. Those are real. They need to be dealt with. But I'm talking about the reality of what you know about you commitments you've made, things you've done nobody else knows about or only a few do. The truth is, 
is that if you're going to deal with this gap in a healthy way and not let it spill over and create roughness in your relationships, the truth is, is you're going to have to be honest with who you are to yourself. One of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself is the ability to speak to yourself in honest, sobering, accurate ways about where you really are. And there's two sides of that coin. I want to spend just a couple moments on the one side that I've been kind of talking about already, which is this side that sometimes we don't always hit the mark. We don't always measure up. That's true for all of us in here. And in fact, for the last couple thousand years, churches, it seems, has done a, have done a pretty good job of talking about that, that we don't always measure up. And the truth is we don't. The Bible says it this way, that we have all sinned. And that word sin in the Greek, the language of the New Testament, harmartia, literally means to miss the mark. So sin in one sense is defined as we miss the mark, and we've all done that. You know that. You don't need me to tell you that. You know you've missed your own mark. And we're not even counting the marks that other people have given you. Of course you have. So when the Bible says you're a sinner, unless you don't understand that term and it strikes you wrong, when you understand it as you didn't hit the marks that God set for you, you didn't hit the marks you set for yourself, that's not a statement of self-flagellation. You're not beating yourself up. It's just honesty. You don't always hit the mark. I don't always hit the mark. And sometimes we just need to tell ourselves that. But here's the other truth we have to tell ourselves. That while we don't miss the mark, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible says that God made you in his image. That while you're broken, you are valuable. While you don't always do right, you are redeemable. And even if you're cracked and broken, God can still do powerful things in and through your life. And so part of the truth we have to speak to ourselves is who God says we are, not just what our problems say we are, not just what our failures say we are, but who does God say we are? One of the reasons I love coming to church, you don't have to like this, is I get reminded that there's a big God who's bigger than all my problems, and that God has spoken over me a truth that I keep forgetting. And when I go to church, I get reminded of it. That Ben, as imperfect as he is, as broken as he is, as much of a sinner as he can be, is loved by a God who knows how to love, is accepted and affirmed and valued by the creator of the universe. See, in, in my life, sometimes people haven't spoken those truths over me, and their actions haven't communicated those truths. And so on occasion, I'll believe a lie about me that says, I'm not that. I'm not all that. I can't do, and I shouldn't, and I can't even. And you can fill in your own blanks. And on occasion, the truth that I have to remind myself that I need God to help me do on occasion is, is that while I am broken, I can still do great things. In fact, God seems to relish and using broken things to do great things. So while I think we all want to be known for some great things that we might be able to do, the truth is, is it's okay. In fact, it's freeing to just admit where you really are so long as you're telling yourself the whole story. This incredible, almost ironic dichotomy that on the one hand, I am honest about my failures and faults, and on the other hand, those failures and faults do not fully define me. That's the message, by the way, not just of pop psychology. This is not just Oprah or Dr. Phil. 
This is the message of the gospel. Here's how one writer in the Bible says it. That while you were yet sinning, emphasis on the small me, while you were still very small and broken, while you were still sinning and missing the mark, Christ died for you because he loved you. For God so loved the world, that means you, that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have this everlasting life. And when Jesus unpacked everlasting life, my favorite phrase that he used was that you would have life and you would have it to the full or you would have it abundantly. This is what he calls you to. So sometimes I think what we need to do if we're going to manage the gap is we just need to be able to be brutally honest. This is why we read David's words in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. That's a possibility for you. You can pray an honest prayer. Now, the challenge is when you talk about the gap, and I'm asking you to think about being honest and deal with the reality that sometimes you can be a small me and not always a large me. Sometimes we sit and we hear stuff like that, and what comes to mind is not what's going on in our life, but we're thinking about what's going on in the person next to us. Or maybe it's our son or daughter, or maybe it's someone who's wounded us, and you're praying that they're hearing this. You're thinking about sending them a link to the message. That's fine. Go ahead and do that, but don't miss this. This is not for the person next to you. It's for you. It really is. And it's really difficult. Sometimes in church, it's really easy, by the way, to listen for how other people should be listening and not listen for ourselves. And it's difficult sometimes, but that's the kind of truth pursuit. That's the pursuing the truth that ultimately can set you free. So the first thing I want to suggest to you today in managing your gap is know yourself. Can you be honest enough with yourself and admit where you didn't do it? Like where you got it wrong in big and small ways? Uh, Can you be honest with yourself and say that sometimes your failures, or at least the failures that other people seem to want to call out in you, you believe they do, they make you wallow and identify only with this small M-E? If that's the case, then grab onto the truth of what God says about you. That even if this is true on occasion, you're still loved, you still have value and worth, you're made in his image. Let me give you another recommendation. We all want to be known for something that we're great at. We all want to have a reputation. We all want the stats of our life to pile up. But I think that sometimes what we really need instead of being known for that stuff is we really need to be known by somebody. So I'm asking you to know yourself. Be honest. Find some freedom there. And I'm asking you to consider this thing, which is very, very scary. To let somebody else really know you. Let somebody else really know you. This is what you hope for in a marriage. I mean, you did not get married, stand before God in a group of people, for those of you that are married, in hopes that one day you could hide who you really are and your thoughts and your concerns from the very person you're trying. You never committed to that. You never wanted that. And yet, that happens in marriage relationships. It happens in friendships. That even if we're there, we're a little nervous because we've seen it go down south pretty badly. We've had some experiences that reinforce this idea. It's very scary to think about being honest and open and vulnerable with the people around us. Seems very scary. In fact, what we'd really rather have is people would just know us for the great stuff we're good at. You know? Some projection of what we aspire to. And we often just try to manage that image so that that's what they see 
and we cover up really what's going on inside of us. Now, some of that's healthy. I mean, the last thing we're, we want you to do, the last thing I want you to do is in every group you're in, just show up and the first thing, hi, my name is Ben. Let me give you a list of all the things that are broken with me. That's odd. That's weird. If you have a friend like that, you know how taxing that is, right? That's ridiculous. You're not know what I'm asking. But there should be a handful of people, one or two or five, that kind of know you, and they know that there's an aspirational self, and they know there's some reality, and they cannot be okay with the gap. It's freeing to have people who know you, really know you, not the projected you, the real you. And they go, I still like you. I still want you in my life. We call these people, here's the big Greek word for it, friends. The problem is, is you've had friends, and I've had friends. Friends don't always act like that, do they? But what if there were a group of people? It probably wouldn't be 50. It might be two, five, six, if you're lucky, maybe. And you could let down your guard. By the way, when God started the church family, the Bible calls the family of God brothers and sisters. It uses very family language. It didn't have in mind my dysfunctional family. I had in mind a family that valued each other. And because you were born into it or adopted into it, no matter what you did, you're still a part of it. And so the family nomenclature is powerful to understand what God's heart was in starting the church. As messed up as it can be. Because we all have this me that we bring to any church. You have it. The people you're sitting next to have it. We also have this. And sometimes we're very good at projecting this. But God's heart was is that he'd have this family that he'd bring together from every part of the world. All different kinds of brokenness would come together. And they would not have to constantly put up the mask and project. They could on occasion pull it off with appropriate timing and setting, of course. But they could pull it off and they could be real. So, so, so look, look at how the author of Hebrews kind of talks about this idea on your message notes. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse uh, 24 and 25. Here's, here's what the writer says. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So you're in the gap. What if you had a group of people around you who spurred you on towards love and good deeds? Your aspirational, your big capital M, capital E self. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could have a group of people like that? Well, you can. It's not easy, and it's not problem-free, and you don't get a group, and once a group is set, it's fixed, and it always goes well. Even the group you have sometimes doesn't always live up to it because they have their small M-E as well. But the writer of Hebrews presses in further, and he says, let's spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then he says, don't give up meeting together. As you see, some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another, even all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the day when God's going to do all his big work. And another writer of the Bible talks about this concept of letting down the guard and being real around a group of people. James chapter 5, the brother of Jesus, if there's ever any proof that Jesus was the Son of God, is his own brother James, one point, bows down and says, you're clearly God. Now I'm going to tell you, I have family members. Not one of my brother, not my brother or any one of my sisters is ever going to look at me and say, you're God. I've tried to get them to do that. It never went well. Never went well. But James, the brother of Jesus, follows Jesus as an adult. Here's what James writes. He says, therefore, confess your sins 
to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There's a way to manage the gap to where you're not just constantly image projecting, only known for what you're best at, but there are a group of people around you. It won't be everybody. Shouldn't try to make it be everybody. That's taxing on everybody when you try to make it everybody. But there can be a few. Hopefully it's your spouse, but it may not be all the way. Hopefully it's the friends you had as children. I have found a lot of my childhood friends, when I hung around them, I acted childish. But I found the power of being able to have a group of people around me who we could confess our sins one to another. Think about that. Where else in life are you encouraged to just be honest? I, I can tell you a couple places. A counselor's office where you're paying them a couple hundred bucks an hour. By the way, if you want to do that for me, you can be as honest as you want to be. I'll, 50 bucks an hour. I mean, that, that's good. I'm good, right? But what if you could just have normal, everyday people? James says in the family of God, for other people who are living and managing their gap, there's a place where you can be honest and just say, let me tell you a little bit about me. And when they do it, they don't go, oh my gosh, you are so messed up. <laughs> now they might be thinking that, but what they do instead is they pray for each other. And when they do that, something powerful happens. Now, a lot of times in church when we talk about praying, we talk about when you pray, your sins are forgiven. But that's not what James says here. That happens, by the way. But that's not what he says. When you pray after people are confessing their sins to one another in this kind of safe, closed circle where there's trust, when you do that, here's what happens. You actually get healed. You get made whole. Getting made whole, let me, let me show you what that is visually. Getting made whole is what happens when this and this gets a whole lot closer. Psychologists have a good term for this. They call it the integrated life. The Bible in the Old Testament, uses a word called shalom. We translate it peace. But you're at peace with yourself. And one of the ways you get to be at peace with yourself and at peace with others and at peace with God is in some relationships, you confess your sins one to another. You pray for each other. And then when you do that, you're healed. You're made shalom. You're made at peace. You're made whole. It's a powerful thing. It's one of the reasons why I love this church. I can't do this with everybody, but there has always been a few people that I've been able to sit down with and say, I'm struggling with this. I failed at this. I didn't arrive at my best life now at this. And rather than bringing shame, they supported. They bowed their head and prayed with me. There have been other people I tried to do that with, and when I did it, guess what they did? They emphasized that about me. And I learned very quickly not to do that with them anymore. In fact, I was tempted to not do it anymore at all. But the beautiful thing about the life that God calls you to is he allows you to be honest with yourself, and he'll give you, it'll be hard work, but he'll give you an opportunity to build some relationships with people that you can actually do life with in a way where you can honestly admit the gap instead of feeling the pressure to constantly manage your image in front of people. Let me give you a third thing I want to suggest to you here. We all want to be known for st great stuff, for the big M-E that we want to be. But I think deep down what we really need is to know Jesus and ultimately to be known by him. Because there's another word that I'd like to put kind of in between 
these two words here. We have the, the big me, but this is the word that I think is so powerful in the Bible. It's a word I've been implying all the way through about yourself, about others, but it's the word that ultimately, I think, defines the Lord. And when we live up to it, it can powerfully impact us and help define who we are as well. It's the word grace. Grace. Now, grace is a, a term that gets used in a lot of different settings, but in the Bible setting, grace is the term used to describe God's goodness given to us, not because we earned it, but because he's good in himself. Simple term with huge, profound implications. So grace is not simply working harder to get your small M-E to become your big M-E. That is not grace. Grace is you're still a small M-E, and on occasion you're a capital M-E, but the grace of God covers all of it, whether the small M-E ever becomes the big M-E or not. See, so much of religion... We're not careful. Sounds like what we're trying to do is get people to be a better version of themselves. And that's really the goal. Just get nicer, get better, get kinder. And I certainly hope you do. Let me be honest. My life is better when you're nicer, kinder versions of you. My marriage is better when Jill is a nicer, kinder version of Jill. She can say the same thing about me. So certainly do that. But that is not grace. Grace defined by another G word which is very powerful, is the word gospel. It's good news, literally. And the good news here is, is that you may never grow out of the small M-E, but because God is grace-filled, because he's good, not because we're good, the good news to us, the gospel is, is that we can receive the life that God wants us to have even while there's a gap that exists in our reality. <laughs> so we all want to be known for something big and strong. We don't want people to see our mistakes, and that's understandable. But God already sees them, and he already knows us. I'm reminded of that time, the story in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve had fallen. They had made a mistake. And the Bible says that God comes down to the garden. I don't know mechanically how this looked, but we're told about their conversation. And God says out loud in the garden, where are you? Now, anytime in the Bible when God asks a question, it's not he doesn't know the answer. There's something else going on. He's trying to bring something to the surface. Where are you? What have you done? Now, there's an opportunity for Adam and Eve to get honest, get real. And they say, we've eaten, we've done it, we've made the mistake, we've, we've blown it. And, God, and because of that, now we feel naked and ashamed, we feel broken we're no longer here. We're here. God says, who told you these things? Who are you listening to? Who told you? And the gospel of God, the grace of God, allows us to listen to a different voice when we're living with the reality of the gap. It's the voice that says, I love you. You have value. You have worth. And I actually want a relationship you, with you before you get cleaned up. Uh, so this hope that I had in this family that I was creating, that's the small expression of it. The big expression, the whole reason I created a family like that is because part and parcel of who I am in this world is I'm the God who wants to have a relationship with broken people. 
with lowercase me people. I don't just need you to get cleaned up and come to me. In fact, the idea of getting cleaned up so you can come to me is completely foreign to the good news I have for you. That would be like saying, I need to lose a bunch of weight, so I'm going to join the gym, but I'm too embarrassed to join the gym. So I'm going to lose 30 pounds before I go to the gym to work out to lose weight. That's counterproductive. It doesn't work that way. And yet, don't we know people, maybe you, who've done similar kinds of things? If you believed religion was all about getting cleaned up so that you could come be a part, you missed these two big words. So there's a gap, but there's grace. And the good news of the gospel is, is that the God of grace will fill your gap. It's filled mine. It's the whole reason we started this church. It wasn't because we thought that we were going to be completely surrounded by ME people, although we had aspirations. We have hopes. We have the things we want to do. We're still calling men to be godly men and serve their families, to be good husbands. We're calling single men to make something more of their lives than just their own joy. We're calling women to walk in the identity that God has. We have aspirational selves that we want. We want parents to be good parents. We want marriages to be healthy. We don't want our lives to be marked only by the gap, of course. But while we do that, we're aware that without grace and without the gospel, we are doomed in our gap. The good news today is you're not doomed. You're not doomed at all. And before we get into the rest of this series, we talk about how that unnecessary roughness can, can do all kinds of damage to the important parts of our life. I want to talk, I wanted to talk very candidly with you about dealing with you. So how are you going to manage the gap? Because it's there. It's there. You have it. I have it. And so you can keep trying to image manage. You can keep pretending, ignoring, comparing, averaging, or... I would suggest you turn to the God who knows the gap and decided he would cover it. The Bible says he did it in a very miraculous kind of way. That he sent Jesus literally to stand in the gap. That he was raised on a cross, arms out, feet down, head up. And in that posture, it's a very symbolic posture. The Jesus on the cross reaches out to humanity and allows us to lock arms with him and be a part of his family that's the horizontal component of the cross it connects us to each other and then there's a vertical component to the cross it connects us to our heavenly father that jesus did the work on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves we could not cover the gap fully so jesus comes and does it for us because he's the only person the bible informs us who had no gap he was perfect. And as a perfect sacrifice, he could stand in our gap for us. And we're invited then to trust, to get real about who we are, where we are, and to trust the work that he did for us, to believe that he's a God of grace and there really is good news in our gap when we trust the work he did for us instead of the work we would do on our own. And interestingly, oh my gosh, is that when we do that, it's, it's amazing what happens. So often when he does that, while our lowercase me never disappears, it's amazing when God is involved, when we're honest with ourselves, when we have a group of people around us who are spurring us on, it's amazing how often, while you never fully lose the lowercase me, this side of heaven, it's amazing how often it begins to grow. It doesn't grow to earn the grace, but in response to the grace, in response to these powerful forces of truth in our life, 
freedom begins to come to us. We begin to grow. We started this church, honestly, in part, so that all of us could have an opportunity to have a family that would encourage us. And we'd regularly be reminded of the grace of God given to us. So two verses real quickly for you. Look at how the Bible describes this. John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, Jesus, the work he did, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, connected to that family. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you can be saved from yourself, from this world, from sin, from its penalty, from the gap, it doesn't define you fully anymore. You can be saved. So I want to give you a chance to think about that deeply. At the bottom of your message notes, there's those simple ABCs to receiving the grace of God in your life to help cover the gap. It's a simple prayer that in a minute I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. It goes like this. It says, I admit I'm a sinner. That's the A. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave to forgive my sin and make me your child. I confess that Jesus is Lord, and I invite him to control my life as the leader. So, lead me. Guide me. I trust you. I'll follow you. Amen. And it's not the prayer, but it's the movement of the heart. It's the affect. It's the will that says, I want the grace that Jesus offers me. I trust the work he did for me more than I can trust myself. And when you do that, the Bible says you become a new creation. Now, in our church, when we hear messages we don't want to just be stirred and think about something nice we actually want to move forward we use a tool called next steps you began to actually take advantage of that earlier in the service with this connect card so if you would grab that out everybody who calls this church home is already doing it if you're our guest we're going to give you an opportunity right now to take a couple steps forward and then i'm going to give you an opportunity to turn this card in or take it home with you we don't have to know it's totally on you but while I've been talking, it's possible that you've been wrestling with the reality of the gap. Maybe you feel stirred to trust God. So next step A for us, every week around here, it's the same. It says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. This is that simple act where you say, I can't do this on my own. So I'm going to trust the work Jesus did for me on the cross and the resurrection. I'm going to trust that as the way by which I become a part of the family of God. My sins are covered and Jesus becomes the leader of my life. If you want to do that, take that pen that we've put on your seat, check the box, and in a few moments when our offering bucket comes around, I invite you to put that in the offering bucket, and I'd like to send you an email. Won't call you, won't show up, won't ask anything of you. I'd like to send you an email about what it means to be a child of God. I think it'll encourage you deeply. And when I pray in a second, give you a chance to maybe use the words I wrote for you there or your own and just say to God, God, I trust you with my gap. Honestly, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, but you saved me. Make me a part of your family. The next step B says, hey, I want to be baptized on October 13th or December 8th. These are our next baptisms. If you're an adult who's given your life to Jesus and you haven't been baptized, check the box. That's how we start the conversation here. And at the end of that conversation, you can make a decision, but you begin by checking the box, all right? Now, next step C is something I hope everybody in the room will do. It's a step I think we can all take. It says, I'll do what I can to attend all five weeks of the Unnecessary Roughness message series. So we started today. you got four to go. You're 20% in. You're doing well. And we're going to unpack how the people who are often living in the gap might bleed over and affect other people negatively. 
and what to do when people have been unnecessarily rough with you. That's what we're going to talk about. I think you'll find it very helpful and meaningful. So if you want to do that, check the box. I'd love to send you a little preview of where we're headed in your inbox this week. And then next step, D, this is for a lot of folks. It's uh, send me the link for Grow. And then there's supposed to be the title of the Grow One class right there in parentheses. You see that? That's what we would call a foul if this were football. It's incredibly embarrassing. I promise you if you're here for second service, it won't be there. All right. So Grow One is all about uh, understanding the gospel. It's all about understanding our church and deciding if God's helping you move to this place to be a part of the a family of God that's expressed here. And at the end of it, you have an opportunity to make a decision, no obligation, but you would at least know what we're about and how we got here and what we do. It's called Grow One. We'd love to serve you a meal and tell you about it. Check the box. You'll get the information. And the next step, E, says send me a link for a small group number. So on the inside of your message notes was a series of numbers. You can just put that number next to next step E, the group you'd want to join. This is where I have those people who help me. These are the ones who pray for me and lead me, guide me, and bring grace in my failures. We'd love for you to be a part of that as well. Why don't you set that side of car, uh, that side, that cart aside for just a moment? If you're our guest, this next portion really isn't for you. But if you call this church home, I want to give you an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what He's blessed you with. So for 15 years. We've had people who have been faithful to pray for this church, serve their community, give of their money. Think about that. That's crazy. They give money to help make a church where we'd have more than a slogan on a door. We'd have a reality called real love now. You could be real. You could experience love and extend love. And you could get started on the life that God has for you right now. That's all that means, real love now. And so I just wanted to say to the folks who call this church home, thank you for 15 years. Of faithfulness. Some of you have been along the entire journey. And some of you have been here for a couple weeks and you've already jumped on to pray for us, to serve, to give, to be a part of what God's doing. Thank you for that. We're not done. 15 years in and a lot more to do. But today I'm grateful for you. If you're our guest, please don't feel compelled to give. If you want to, of course, we'll use it. But your gift to us would be your fill.connect card so that we can send you some free Chick-fil-A in the mail. Just put it in there. Make sure we can read your address. It's your next steps today. Put it in there. I'd love to communicate with you about that. Right now, why don't we bow our heads and do some business with God? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Father, I thank you that you are a good God who brings grace into our gaps. I thank you, Father, that when I am not all that I'd like to be, you love me anyway. I thank you that's not just true for a few of us, but it's true for whosoever will that wants to come to you, you have grace for them. So, Father, do your work in us. I lift up the men and women right now who are saying, Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. So I trust the work you've done on my behalf. I accept the truth of the gospel, the good news that says, Jesus died for me and rose again. I trust that he is Lord. Now, Father, would you go with us today? As we go out to eat food, would you bless it? Would you nourish our bodies? But Father, would you also help us connect with you and with each other as we go about our week. We pray it in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.